Well, welcome everybody to all of our campuses meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. So glad you made it to church. That takes a commitment and priority, so way to go, making uh, church and worship a priority in your life. Uh, glad you're here. I also want to welcome those of you who are wor worshiping and watching online as a part of our congregation, wherever you might be around the country and world. Always glad to have you join us as well. We are on a series called How the Mighty Fall, and we got this title from a book that Jim Collins wrote back in 2009. Jim Collins researched dozens of formerly great companies like IBM, Circuit City, Hewlett-Packard, and Motorola, who then fell, and he traced five stages of decline that led to their downfall. And I read this book nine years ago, and I was struck by his research, so struck by it that I believe God used his book to warn me of my own vulnerability as a leader and pastor and to warn our church as well. I was actually on my way to Norway to mentor some other church leaders, and, but I was not in a good place myself personally. I'd been teaching a lot. We'd been on a 10-year run of raising money and building buildings, hiring new staff, just trying to keep up. And I had just come out of a late-night meeting, board meeting, where we were discussing an issue, and the discussion was this. Should we borrow $20 million to build a new campus in the city of Woodbury, and that would be in addition to the $18 million we were already carrying in debt. That was our discussion that night. Uh, the, day, the day next day I was to leave for Norway. And I was so disturbed in my spirit about this discussion and potential decision that at the end of our meeting that night, I said, look, I'm leaving for Norway tomorrow morning. I want all of us to pray about this issue. And when I get back, we're going to have another meeting because I am very unsettled about this. Uh, there were some people at the time who thought we should charge every hill at all costs. But what if the costs were unmanaged debt, stress, and fractured relationships? Uh, the, night, uh, the next night while flying over the Atlantic Ocean, I, God used Colin's book really to warn me, and I spent the next 10 nights in Norway praying about this issue because I can never sleep when I fly over to Europe. I just lay awake at night until about midnight, finally fall asleep. So I prayed every night over this decision about Woodbury, and by the end of that trip, 10 days later, I had such clarity about what we should do that I sat in an Amsterdam hotel room about 30 floors up, and I got up at midnight, and I wrote down 12 reasons why we were not going to borrow $20 million for a new campus in Woodbury. Instead, we rented space at Eastridge High School in Woodbury, built a base of about 1,500 attenders, did a building campaign, and then took on the new building three years later. And today, our debt is nearly gone. That decision, uh, nine years ago, I believe, saved us from financial trouble and set us on a path of health and growth. So I want to show you Colin's five stages of decline. And this is for companies, churches, families, and for individuals as well. And the first stage is this. Uh, arrogance born of success. Jason Strand talked about this two weeks ago. Fantastic message. Arrogance born of success is when you're successful, so you become arrogant. You begin to think, we're so great, we can do anything. That leads to stage two. John Alexander spoke a great message on this last week. Undisciplined pursuit of more. That's when you think you can borrow $20 million on top of $18 million and think you're going to be fine. You think we're so great, we can take on anything, so we take on more scale, more commitments, more debt, until you absolutely collapse under the weight and pressure of it all. 
Stage three is denial of risk and peril. The cracks are beginning to show in the system and in your people, but you're ignoring the warning signs. On a personal level, it's when you can't make your credit card payments, but you keep spending and you ignore the, the trouble signs. Or a doctor says your diet is affecting your blood pressure, but you deny there's a problem, which leads to stage four. You start to grasp for, grasp for salvation. You start to sink and you can feel it. So you're looking for a silver bullet, a quick fix, and you lurch into something very risky as a last chance effort to survive. And that leads to stage five, which is death and it's over. When I was 14 years old, I went through all these five stages in 30 seconds, except the death one. I didn't die. But our family of seven, uh, five kids in our family, was invited to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, by a family in our church who rented a beach house near the Harbor Town Golf Course. It was something that our family could never afford. My dad was a pastor, and we were just always scraping by. So it was like a dream to our family to be invited down here. We showed up with cutoffs and camo because we just didn't know any better. And, and just down from the beach was this, or from this house was a private manicured golf course. The seventh green was right up against the ocean. And so we wandered onto this beautiful golf course and my dad said, hey kids, look at all those golf balls stuck in the palm trees. He said, I'll bet if we dragged a ladder over here, we could knock some of those balls down because you know, kids, it's a sin to ever buy a golf ball. It's my dad. So we did that. We dragged a ladder along this beautiful beach, snuck onto the courts, walked up to a palm tree. Dad handed me a long pole and said, why don't you climb up, see if you can knock down some balls. So I climbed up to the, to the very, to the, to the rung that was just next to the very top rung, tried to reach. It was still a little bit too high. So I said, Dad, you sure you got the ladder down there? He said, yep, you're good to go. So I stepped on the very top step. The step that says, don't step on this step, okay? Stopped on the very step and reached as high as I could, and that ladder shot out from underneath me. I came down sideways, landed on my ribs, snapped the ladder in two, laid there in pain and thought, I have broken my ribs. My dad leaned over and said, you okay? I said, I don't think so. He said, well, that would have killed me. No kidding. And then he said, no, this is my dad. Then he said, now that our ladder's broken, we should go and wade through those lagoons over there. I'll bet they're loaded with balls. I said, aren't there alligators in those lagoons? Classic. My dad said, ah, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. Great parenting. I mean, unbelievable, I'm still standing here. But I went through five stages of decline in 30 seconds. We had no business being on that course. But we thought, you know, we're at Hilton Head. We've arrived. We're entitled. And it was arrogance. And we had plenty of golf balls back home. But arrogance leads to stage two, an undisciplined pursuit of more. Then, when I flew off the ladder, we went to stage three, a denial of peril and risk. You know, a normal person would have said, maybe this is too dangerous. But dad ignored the risk, went to stage four, grasping for salvation, and sent me into a lagoon infested with alligators. Now, 
wanting more isn't necessarily bad. It's the undisciplined pursuit of more that's driven by arrogance, that denies the risks, that leads to a fall. And none of us are immune from this. So I want to show you a guy in the Bible who had it all, but he lost it all. Saul grew up in cutoffs and camo, just like our kids did. Bible says he was from the lowest family in the lowest tribe of Israel, but God instructed the prophet Samuel to go anoint Saul, this little kid, as Israel's first king. And Saul's just like, what? I mean, he's just doing life. He never saw this coming. He was actually out looking for some lost donkeys that had kind of wandered away from their family. And so Samuel tracks Saul down, who's looking for donkeys, and he says, God has chosen you, Saul, to be Israel's first king. And Saul says this, but I'm from the smallest tribe, and my family's the least of all the families. In other words, why would God choose me? There's nothing about me or my family that's special, but I want to point out a couple of qualities that I see in Saul, and I think is the reason God kind of selected him to be the king. And so Samuel goes up to Saul, and he anoints Saul, and this is what he says to Saul. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you with power, and you will be changed into a different person. Once this happen, happens, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you, Saul, so God changed his heart, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him with power. And as you read this, you can tell that Saul had a submissive spirit toward God. So important. He submitted to God's will, and I bring this up because a lot of people, I think, are kind of resistant to God's will. They kind of have a hardness Toward God, and so I want to ask you, is your spirit submissive toward God? Are you willing to pray prayers like, God, change me? I'm open to that. And make me into the kind of person that you want me to be. Because, gang, being submissive toward God, I'm telling you, is a key to greatness. And I love that Samuel says this, when the Spirit of the Lord comes on you with power, I love this, do whatever your hand finds to do. In other words, don't quit your job. Don't drop out of school if God's Spirit comes on you. Keep doing life. Go to work. Raise your kids. Read great books. Stay physically fit. Keep doing whatever your hand finds to do because it's in the day-to-day -day moments that God often does his best work. It's in those moments when you hug your child and you think this is no big deal, I do this every day, several times a day, but to that child, God is working through that affection or you have coffee with a friend and you think it's no big deal, but God can show up there or send a text to a colleague or solve a problem at work. It's in those moments, everyday moments, that God's power shows up just doing whatever your hand finds to do. Don't quit life. Keep looking for God to show up in the small things in life. So Saul's out looking for donkeys. He's just doing life. 
And Samuel tracks him down. He tells him he's going to be the next king. But when Saul returns home after hearing this news, look what happens. One of Saul's family, his uncle, asks, well, Saul, where have you been? He's just inquiring. Saul said, out looking for donkeys, but when I couldn't find them, I bumped into Samuel, the prophet. His uncle asked, well, what did Samuel say? He said that the donkeys have been found. <laughs> now, this strikes my, and I know you don't find this funny, but I do. Because he's just been told he's going to be king. He's elected president. He just signed an $84 million contract to be a quarterback. And when his uncle asks him, what's going on? Well, Samuel said the donkeys have been found. This is just funny to me. But there's a really important point to this. He's from the lowest family in the worst tribe, but he's wise enough to not tell anybody about that, that he's going to be king. Because some people aren't ready for that kind of news. Sometimes God will bring about a spiritual change in your life, but maybe certain people aren't ready to hear about it, like an uncle or even a parent or even a friend that God is doing an amazing work in your life. Uh, when I started leading this church 27 years ago, I knew that our, our name, First Baptist Church, was probably a barrier to our mission of reaching people for Christ. But I didn't say a word about it for five years. I just carried this in my, in my spirit. I knew that our name was a barrier. But I didn't say anything for five years because I knew people weren't ready to hear that kind of news, Saul knew that God was with him, that he was going to be king, but he just kept looking for donkeys and doing whatever his hand found to do. By the way, any person of greatness has spent some time looking for donkeys and just doing whatever their hand finds to do. Moses spent 40 years just wandering in the desert, not doing much of anything, just kind of surviving. 40 years. Peter spent most of his life on a fishing boat before God used him. Jesus spent 30 years in carpentry before we hear anything about uh, who Jesus is. A few years ago, a guy came into my office. He said, Bob, I want to be where you are. He said, actually, I want to be in your seat. And I said, well, are, are you willing to spend four years going to college? Four more years going to seminary? Three more years going to spend Penn State University. Five more years in a little country church where nobody knows who you are or where you are. I could care less. And then 10 more years leading a church of a few hundred people. And he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to spend time going to school, working part-time jobs, raising kids at home, and grinding it out behind the scenes. But I am telling you, your most important moments in life are those that nobody sees. Do you know that? Your most important moments as a person growing and developing are the moments that nobody sees because what God is developing in you during those moments is as important as what God wants to do through you. And you gotta have patience. But then it's time and, and Samuel gathers all the tribes in this big event that he's going to announce to them who the next king is going to be but at this historic event, Saul's nowhere to be found. And so 
The Bible says they prayed and asked God, where is he? Where is Saul? And God answered and said, he's hidden himself among the baggage. This is also funny to me. He's the new king, but he's hiding behind the baggage. He's afraid to come out. And here's why I think that truly, honestly, truly great people often don't like the stage. They don't like the lights or the limelight, and they kind of get pulled into it reluctantly. And so Saul is hiding behind the luggage, and there's a, there's a degree of humility in that, I believe. Also fear, but humility. And I like that about him. But then he's, he's thrust into leadership, and because God's power is on him, his life just begins to take off. In fact, look at this. After Saul assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. It says wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on his enemies. He fought valiantly, delivering Israel from those who had plundered him. I mean, he wasn't at home having tea and crumpets with the, with the queen. This guy was a stud. He was out inflicting punishment like Braveheart with mud and blood on his face on the enemy. The guy was just incredibly strong, and his fame began to soar. But here's the truth. Success and fame is hard to handle. And Saul was about to enter stage one, arrogance born of success, 1512, arrogance born of success. After Saul defeated the Amalekites, he went to Carmel, and there he set up a monument Incredible. In his own honor. I'm so great. I'm going to set up a monument to myself. Post it on Facebook. Leak it to the news. So everyone will know how great I am. And a few verses later, it says, The Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king. I'm telling you, the biggest mistake Saul made, the biggest mistake you and I can ever make is when we begin to think that we are the source of our greatness. In fact, Samuel called him on it. Samuel got wind of this. He said, Saul, the Lord anointed you king. The Lord made you great. You were out looking for donkeys and hiding behind luggage. It was the Lord who anointed you king and made you great. You didn't make you great. And it was the beginning of his downfall. And now 1614, the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And he was filled with depression. The thing that I fear most as a leader, as a husband and dad, is that God's spirit would somehow leave me. Gang, any abilities that you and I have, any spiritual gifts that we have, any authority or wisdom that we have comes from God. And the minute any of us take credit for any of it, we risk losing all of it. 
Saul began to think he was the source of his own greatness, and because of his arrogance, God's spirit left him, and he began to fall, and that led to stage two, an undisciplined pursuit of more. In fact, God was instructing Saul and Israel all along, look, when you defeat an enemy, do not plunder their, their possessions. Do not take what isn't yours. Leave their livestock, leave it all there. But the next verse says this, but Saul and his army took the best sheep and cattle, everything that was good, he plundered the enemy. Israel was the richest nation on the planet. Saul was the richest man on the planet, but it wasn't enough for him. He thought, you know what? I'm king. I'm entitled. I'm gonna take what I want. And I just wanna pause and wonder about our own lives and think about our own lives. How many of us think at times, you know what? I'm entitled. I deserve more. Somebody owes me. And so we form a habit of taking things that aren't ours. Even things like a hotel towel, office supplies. And we think, you know, they got plenty. I'm just gonna siphon a little off for myself. Or we overbill clients. We falsify expense reports. We just pad that a little bit so that we can skim a little for our own wallet. Or we cross relational lines, taking something that isn't ours. Gang, whenever we take something that isn't ours, what we're really saying is, God, what you've given me isn't enough. My job, my salary, even my spouse, I'm entitled to more, so I'm just gonna take it because I deserve it. And honestly, and I say this in love, it's the reason some of you struggle some of you wish you had more authority and position and responsibility, but you lack integrity and God knows it. And others know it. Here's my counsel to every person here online watching. Show integrity in the small things. And God will entrust you with bigger things. If you aren't honest in the small things, why would God ever entrust you with bigger things? In his arrogance, Saul thought he deserved more. He began taking what wasn't his. God's spirit left him. That led to stage three, denial of risk and peril. From this point on, Saul's life unravels. You know, he's still king, but God had removed his power from him, his spirit. He gave it to a young kid named David. Remember David? David showed up on the battlefield, and there was this giant Goliath that was intimidating the the nation Israel, and David shows up and he says, how come no one's going out to fight this guy? I'll do it. And so he does. And he knocks him right between the lights. And Goliath falls and David slays the giant. And almost immediately, the people shifted their praise from Saul to David. At this, Saul was very angry. It galled him. The next day, while David played his harp for Saul, Saul hurled a spear at David, but David dodged it. Saul was afraid because the Lord was with David, no longer with Saul. And as you read the rest of this story, Saul's life just spirals into decline, but he's in such denial about this decline, he doesn't see it. And if you read this story sometime this week, you'll see three signs, three signs of decline. It's when you become angry, afraid, and isolated. 
Anger, fear, and isolation are sure signs that you are in decline or your company's in decline. David's popularity is rising and it angers Saul so much that he hurls his spear at David. He does it three different times. See, the problem with Saul now is he's got a hurling problem. Because of his anger, he hurls things. He hurls spears and insults and accusations. Quick time out again. Do you know anybody like that who's got a hurling problem? They're so mad at everybody and everything, they just throw stuff. They hurl things like anger and insults, accusations. They send nasty emails or nasty texts to people. Saul promised never to do it again. But after the third spear, David knew he had to leave. Because when you're dealing with an unstable, angry person, you need more than a promise. They'll sometimes promise, hey, I won't do it anymore. And sadly, some of you have a parent like that or an adult child like that or a boss or a friend who's got a hurling problem and they promise not to do it anymore, but you need more than a promise. You need them to change. So you might have to leave for a while or make them leave until they change. Because some people have ongoing anger, and it's the first sign that there's serious decline. Second sign is fear. This is Saul's main emotion as you read the text. Because when you start to fail and lose power and lose people, your main emotion is fear. But the Bible says fear doesn't come from God. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So it's not coming from God, but one of power, love, and self-control. So if you're filled with fear, that's coming from somewhere else. And a good thing for you to do would be to pause sometime this week and say, first of all, am I afraid more than I should be? Second, where is that fear coming from? It's a good thing to think about, and some of you might need some help looking at that in your life. The third sign of decline is isolation. It's when you look around and the only friend you have left is your mother and even she's a little iffy. <laughs> it's when you think everybody's against you. Everybody. And so what you do is you, be, you begin to withdraw into isolation. But gang, isolation is a killer. And if you've withdrawn from family members and friends and church and coworkers, if you're blaming everybody for your problems and you're just kind of withdrawing from life, that is a sure sign of decline. Again, as you read the story of Saul, toward the end of his life, he was blaming everybody, including his sons, his friends, his generals in battle. He was blaming them. He even ordered the execution of the church or temple priests because he thought they were all against him. They weren't. But he was angry, he was afraid, he was hurling things, and he thought everybody else has the problems. He started out just a humble guy, just doing whatever his hand found to do. It's so sad. He became the most wealthy, powerful man on earth until he got arrogant. And then he began taking more than was his because he felt entitled. And then he began denying the risks and the cracks in his life. And he ended up, believe it or not, committing suicide by falling on his own sword. 
The Bible says when the enemy found Saul's body, they actually cut off his head and they pinned his naked body to a wall. Imagine that. How does that happen? How do you start out as king, having it all? How do you start out on top of the pile and end up pinned naked against a city wall without your head? Bad ending. Here's how that happens. You're successful. So you become arrogant. You start taking things that aren't yours. And God knows it. You deny the signs that God has left you. And before you know it, you become an angry, afraid, and isolated person. And the ending is not good. But you know, I want to show you a different kind of king real briefly as we close. Because it doesn't have to be that way. You can get off that ramp anytime if it's not too late. So let me show you a different king real quickly. Two weeks ago, I and three friends spent four days in northern Minnesota, Canadian border boundary waters, and it takes six long hours to get out of where we fish, paddling 17 miles of just brutal, monotonous paddle. I count the paddles. 20, 25, 25, 25, just brutal, brutal. Six hours straight trying to get out. And the only thing that keeps us going is the Dairy Queen in, in Ely, Minnesota, on the Canadian border. Thoughts of, you know, thoughts of the double bacon cheeseburger and blizzard, you know, just help us push through the exhaustion. So three years ago, we stopped in, and the owner came over to our table, and he came up to me and said, you look familiar. He said, do I know you? I said, I don't think so. He said, are you, are you by chance a pastor? I thought, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Ely, Minnesota, nowhere, you know, Dairy Queen. I said, yeah. He said, I knew it. He said, my friend watches you online, and when you mentioned my Dairy Queen a couple of years ago, he sent me your message. I watched the whole thing. <laughs> he said, you have no idea what that did for my business. My friend Scott, who has no shame, said, what's all that free advertising worth? Is it worth four dilly bars, free ones? He said, absolutely. So we walked out with four dilly bars. So two weeks ago, we were back there again, and the owner, I found out, his name is Paul, and he's watching today. Paul, I, I want to say Ivansich, but that's where the, the emphasis is there. Ivanisich. Gotcha, Paul. Ivanisich. So two weeks ago we were there, Paul Ivanisich, and he's worth the visit. I mean, you walk in, he lights it up. He's got the headset on, working alongside 10 or 12 young staff, and as soon as he sees me, he practically jumps over the counter, gives me a hug and a free blizzard. Love this guy. <laughs> so I called him this week, because I don't know him that well, and I just wanted to find out about his life and about his business. And he said, I've worked here 50 years. I'm 55 years old. I started when I was five years old. It's family business. I asked him where his joy comes from. 
He said, it's my staff. I love working with my staff. I've trained thousands of young people over the years. He said, I've got three managers. One's been with me seven years, another eight years. I've got a special needs employee who's been with me 23 years. When I ask him about the stress of owning a small business, he says, it's with me every single day. But I have tremendous faith in God, and I have to tell myself over and over just to let it go. Give it to God. It's just burgers and fries. And again, I love this guy. And he will never be king. Paul will never be a king, but he is the king of queens. Of dairy queens. And so I thought about Paul this week. Yeah, there he is on the left. So when I thought about Saul in the Bible, I also thought about Paul. One led a nation. The other leads a dairy queen in Ely, Minnesota. One built a monument to himself. The other builds life and hope into those around him. One died an angry, afraid, and isolated man. The other is filled with joy and surrounded by people who love him. It is not how you begin your life that counts the most. It's how you end it. And for me, I want to live and end like Paul, not Saul. And it's our choice. We all have this choice, how we're going to live our lives in arrogance or humility, taking what isn't ours or being grateful for what God has given? Are we gonna face into our issues or are we gonna deny the perils and risks? How are we gonna live? I want us to stand at all campuses and close us out with a, just a closing challenge and prayer. Because represented here today and across the country and world, a lot of you have been successful. That's a good thing. You worked hard. You, you, you know, you did the deal, and you're successful. That's so good. But here's the risks. Don't become arrogant. Don't think that you're the cause of your success because you're not. God gave you life. He gives you breath. He gives you everything that you have. Don't start reaching for things that aren't yours because you feel entitled and important. Don't do that. Everything comes from the hand of God. Don't ignore the risks, cracks in your life and in your family. Lean into those things. Be honest about it. And then don't lurch, grasp for empty things to save you. Turn back to God. So some of you are really successful, and that's a good thing, but be careful. All, most of us are just kind of plodding along. You know, we're looking for donkeys. And we're doing whatever our hand finds to do. And sometimes that's really, really long and boring and hard. Some of us have little kids hardest thing you'll ever do.
And you think to yourself, when will this end? When will they grow up and leave home? They will. Hang in there. Some of you are in a job and it's just like, God, oh, I hate it. But remember, God is at work. He can work in those awful places and show up and you can be a light in those places. Some of you are in school and it's, it's tough. And there's debt issues and relational issues and you think, God, oh, when will I be free of this? Remember that what God is building in you during these times of just doing life is as important as what God wants to do through you someday. And he will work. He will. So God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace, your forgiveness. Thank you that you choose to use us. God, forgive us when we blow it. Help us to become people who are always humble, always grateful. It's the only response we can have to you. We love you. We worship you today. We thank you for your grace and your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for coming out.